As we pray this morning, I'd like to read, uh, as part of our prayer, a couple of verses from Psalm 18. As for God, His way is blameless, and the word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except for our God? Father, as we live in this world that seems to be headed for chaos and destruction extremely rapidly, we're so grateful that you are a rock, unchangeable, immutable, the one who is always there, whose mercy is everlasting. And Father, as we study the story of Samson and as we come to the end of of this man's life, we see the mercy of God just pouring out in, in in these final verses of this man's life. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are merciful. And Father, I pray that in response to your mercy, we will rest in your strength, we will allow your spirit to be our guide and our help that we will be faithful to the word which you have given to each of us. Lord, I thank you for each one in this room today and for the work you're doing in each heart. And I pray that you will continue to bless and keep us focused, Lord, and not distracted or sidetracked in any way. Bless our study this morning, I pray, that as we look at the final day of this man's life, that you will Teach us what we need to know about your character and about our relationship to you. Father, I I thank you as the word is proclaimed today uh, on this premises in in many venues. And Father, as the word goes forth around the world today, we just ask this will be a day of of resurrection in the hearts of millions. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 16th chapter of the book of Judges, You and I, I think, are quite aware now of the life that Samson has lived up to the moment that he was finally captured by the Philistines, blinded, and made to perform the job of an ox, grinding grain in Gaza. And as we come to verse 23, and we read on down to the end of the chapter, we find, of course, one of the most uh, powerful statements of God's grace that exists. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our, com- of our country, who has slain many of us. It so happened when they were in high spirits that they said, Call Samson, that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and they entertained him, and he entertained them, and they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, And all the lords of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof, looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson, Samson grasped 
the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he braced himself against them, with the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with all his might, so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. Then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him and brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah his father. Thus he had judged Israel twenty years. One of the characteristics that we discover about Satan, and this shows up over and over again, and I, under, I understand he's a topic of, a, of the sermon today. Satan, in spite of the fact that he was the anointed cherub that covers a being of great beauty and a being of great intelligence, he has a tendency to constantly overstep himself, to go beyond oh, what is wise. And that he does in this particular instance. He is now going to rub in the fact that he has had victory over God's Shofat. And so he encourages the Philistines, inspires the Philistines to do what we read in this particular passage. This was probably the first anniversary of his capture. And the Philistines were having a great celebration in honor of, the, of their god, Dagon. Who is Dagon? Well, Dagon was a very ancient deity. He was a deity that existed at least a thousand years or more before the time about which we are reading in this passage. He had been worshipped by the Canaanites and by the Phoenicians for many centuries. But he appeared earlier than that amongst the people known as the Amorites. About 2500 BC, we have the earliest record of the existence of this god Dagon in, the Mes in Mesopotamia. Uh, his worship was moved from Mesopotamia eventually over to the Phoenicians, and this is because of the constant interchange between these peoples. Uh, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley is right a part of the great trade route that moved back and forth over what uh, the 19th century historian James Breasted called the Fertile Crescent. And so it was very common for gods and the beliefs to, to move from one place to another. So the Phoenicians picked this worship up and they established their worship center of Dagon at Ugarit, which is on the north coast of what is today Lebanon. According to Akkadian texts, the Akkadians lived back in the time of the ancient Sumerians in the third millennium before Christ. Dagon was equivalent to Enlil. Now, I think I mentioned something about Enlil before, way back in a different uh, month. Enlil was the sort of like the savior god of the Sumerians. The Sumerians had a, had a, a pyramid of gods at the top of which was Anu, who was the creator god. But the personal god of the Sumerians was Enlil. He was the uh, sort of like the savior god. He was the god of the storm, the god of fertility, and so forth. And according to the Akkadians, uh, Dagon was more or less equivalent to, um, to Enlil as a fertility and, and a storm god to the Sumerians. However, according to the Phoenicians, they had modified him a little bit. According to their theogony, uh, they made him the father of Baal. What is very interesting about this is there's a, there is a, a constant merging of these gods and the area in which their authority is tends to overlap. 
And Baal is, is very clearly a descendant of the ancient Sumerian god Enlil in the ancient Theogony. Well, the Philistines adopted this god. It, it was not a god originally with the, with the Philistines, because you remember I mentioned to you before, the Philistines were not native to this area. They came down from Asia Minor and attacked Egypt, were repelled, and ended up in the coast of Canaan. But it was logical for them to adopt this god of the neighboring Phoenicians because the ancient Near Eastern peoples believed that gods were territorial, that each god had its certain territory over which it ruled. And if you look at ancient cultures, you'll discover this is true all over the world. Uh, even here in California, you had the totems of the various tribal groups that existed here, and, and this totem was for this tribe and, and for this area. And so it was for the ancient Near Eastern people. So the, the Philistines certainly thought it was wiser to adopt the god of their neighbors than to try to import their own gods in this other god's territory. And that whole scenario plays into the belief that some Canaanites had that even though Yahweh had proven himself mighty in the crossing of the Red Sea and, and other things that had happened, the victory over the Amorites, that they might still hold out because their gods owned this land. Of course, they didn't understand the concept of the universal God, Yahweh. Well, Dagon became the supreme God of the Philistine, the top God of their pantheon. According to scripture, he was particularly worshipped at Gaza and at Ashdod. His area of authority has been debated down through time because most of the evidence indicates that he's related back to the ancient Sumerian cults and that he was a god of storm particularly in a god of fertility. But if you go back to the early Christian and Hebrew writers, uh, because the word Dagon has the word dog in it, which is the Hebrew word for fish, that some uh, began to believe that he was a fish god. And I've actually seen drawings of this god, and he kind of was fish-shaped, you know. But more modern scholars say, but, but the word Dagon is only slightly modified from Dagon, which is the Hebrew word for grain. And therefore, it's most likely that he was a grain god, a fertility deity, which fits right in with these other permutations that I was speaking of earlier. Other than this particular passage that we read in the book of Judges, the only other reference to Dagon comes in the days of the youth of Samuel. And I thought it'd be interesting to look at that passage in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel 5, beginning of verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Now you, you may not remember that there was war between the uh, Philistines and the Israelites in the days of Samuel, before Samuel was actually the official judge. And Eli was still the high priest at this time, and his sons had done evil. And so the Israelites decided to uh, take the ark of the covenant to battle. They thought certainly this would give them victory, and of course... The ark was captured by the Philistines. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it up by Dagon. When the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. This is the most humorous passage. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. 
Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the house on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. You know, here these people are. Their their God keeps falling over, finally breaks off, and they still are so superstitious they won't walk on the threshold where the God's head broke off. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dan our God. <laughs> Poor God. So they sent after the ark of God came to Ekron, that the Ekronite, Ekronites cried out, saying, They brought the ark of, God, of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel. And let it return to its own place, that it might not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. That's a power encounter. And Dagon came off rather second best. And you would think that the Philistines would get a message, but they don't, because their eyes are blind. Um... Our God, I mean, the, when they say that the hand of the God of Israel is heavy on our God Dagon, it's like, well, wake up, folks, you know. Well, the Philistines in this particular passage are praising their God. Hail unto Dagon. He delivered their enemy into their hands. It's got to be Dagon who did this, of course. And they even sang a praise chorus, which we read there in verse 24. Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. It's a bit of a strange praise chorus, but nevertheless, they're exalting their God for this great victory. The celebration includes a great sacrifice to Dagon and a drunken party. You can be sure of that. Little did they know that Samson was in their hands because of the will of Yahweh God of Israel and it had absolutely nothing to do with Dagon. It was so that God would be glorified and Dagon would be proven to be what he really was. Dagon was nothing, of course, but a lifeless image. The problem that the Philistines and almost all of the pagan peoples had with the God of Israel was that he was not worshipped in any form. There was no image by which one could worship the God of Israel. And that's the way they had always, always worshipped. And even the Israelites, you remember, when they came out of Egypt and, and they went to Mount Sinai and Moses was gone, they were so imbued with what they had known in Egypt because gods were everywhere and they always were in some form that they even had Aaron make a golden calf and called it Yahweh. Once they were well liquored, the Philistines wanted something to spice up their party. It was getting dull. And so they called for Samson to amuse them. It reminds me, of course, of the days of Daniel, huh? When uh, Daniel was in Babylon and uh, Belshazzar and all the lords were having a hard time enjoying themselves because the party was getting kind of dull. And so they brought in all the gold and silver implements from the temple and uh, drank to the, to the gods of Babylon. And suddenly the big hand came and wrote on the wall, you know, you guys have been found wanting and this day your kingdom will be taken from you. They're bored. <laughs> Bring in Samson. 
Have him amuse us. Have him amuse us. What could be more satisfying than to make sport of the very one who had terrorized them for 20 years, whose name caused the, their hair to stand up and, you know, goosebumps to go up their back. And here he is right in front of them. They believed, of course, that a public display of this blind and helpless man would be the perfect testimony to the supreme power of Almighty Dagon. Well, we get a sense, I think, as we read this passage of how the Philistines were enjoying this and how much each one wanted to be a part of this, and they just couldn't get their fill of it. And so, in order to get a better view of the fun, the Philistines were climbing all over the temple, even on the roof. I've seen various attempts to re reconstruct what this temple might have looked like, but it's, it's just, uh, you know, somebody's uh, imagination. We do not have the actual ruins of this temple to, uh, to reconstruct what happened here, you know, from ruins. But the building we know was built in such a way as to place the major burden, the thrust of the building, on two central pillars. So there may have, there certainly were perimeter pillars, but there was the, the, the thrust, the main thrust of the building was on these two central pillars. And, and certainly the building was overloaded with people jammed everywhere. It wasn't made to have this crowd, especially crawling on the building itself and on the roof. Uh, they're up there trying to look in. The building apparently had an opening in the roof of some sort kind of an atrium-like thing. And so they were up there looking in. They all wanted to see this man and have their delight uh, amusing themselves looking at the poor blind Samson. The writer notes that the temple was so overcrowded that there were 3,000 men and women on the roof. I, as I thought about that this morning, I was thinking, I, better, I should go get my calculator and figure out how many tons that is, you know. Uh, what would be the average weight of a Philistine in those days? Probably less than the average weight of an American uh, today because almost all the ancients were smaller people uh, than we are today. But it was quite a few tons of additional weight on the roof of the building. There's a brief but very significant statement made in this passage. It says that all the lords of the Philistines were there. All the lords of the Philistines were there. All the top guys from the five cities and their wives were there at this celebration. It was the big celebration of the year. And of course, their celebration of Dagon was augmented by the fact that they had Samson as proof of the power of their God. I suppose today it would be like having all of the House and the Senate and the whole executive and the whole legislature all meeting together in one building and somebody dropping a bomb on it. Now, don't tell me that would be a good idea. I'm just saying <laughs> that would be the comparison. As foolish as Samson had been, our hearts, I think, have to go out to him as we read his prayer in verse 28. Oh, Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, oh God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson had failed God miserably. His eyes, of course, had been one of the major contributors to that failure. Scripture talks about us not being able to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, and mind if we are 
constantly dabbling around in the world of flesh and the devil, the pride of life, the pride, the lust of the eyes, and, and these things which take us away from him. And certainly this is what helped Samson to miss the mark. He chased after Philistine women, and we read it over and over again, because they looked good to him. Because they looked good to him. In the process, and this I think is the saddest part of it all, in the process of chasing after what his eyes lusted after, he spurned his parents, he spurned his Nazarite vow, and he spurned the real meaning of being Shofat in Israel. God allowed this man to live for many months after his capture, and as I said, possibly a full year after his capture. God allowed him to live. God allowed him to push that, that mill around and to grind grain and to think a whole lot. Think a whole lot. I've never been blind, thankfully. Oh, I was snow blind once, but not been truly blind. But I can just imagine what it'd be like. You're, the whole world is shut out, at least visually, and, and you're, lo- you're, you're chained to this, this pole, and you're walking around and around and around and pushing this big stone wheel that's grinding the grain for hours and hours and hours and hours, and then to spend the evening locked up in prison. Talk about boring but talk about time to think. You had nothing else to do but think. To run your life by over and over and over again. I think God allowed him to live bearing the marks of his shame so that during the months that would pass, he would certainly become aware of his failure, become aware of the lust of his eyes and all that had sidetracked him from a wholehearted commitment to God. We have to believe, as we read this passage and as we later look at the couple of verses in in Hebrews chapter 11, we have to believe that deep down inside him there still was a faith in the God of Israel. There was a faith there. But it wasn't wholehearted. His commitment to service was not wholehearted. The Philistines had gained a double victory over him. They had gained a victory over him physically and a victory over him spiritually. And now they're exalting their God, Dagon. His God was made to look weaker than Dagon. But one of the interesting things about God, and we know it right well, do we not? The scripture tells us that God is not mocked. Whatsoever one sows, one shall reap. And this apparent victory of Dagon over God was not going to be allowed to stand. God was going to prove to the Philistines, obviously not finally, but at least prove to them momentarily who was supreme and who was truly God. After all, (laughs) Dagon was as blind as Samson. And not only that, he was deaf and dumb. What a God. Thrilling. We read the passage, we read it before, but to me it just is... If we didn't understand human nature, we'd say, how in the world can this be? But in in Isaiah chapter 44, let me read these verses here concerning the folly of idolatry. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning at verse 14. It's talking about working men, uh, working with wood. Verse 14, surely he, this is the workman, cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it up for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir 
and the, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image, and he falls down before it. Half of it, now, you know, he, he takes a log, a single log. Half of it, he burns in a fire. Over this half, he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. But the other half, he takes and makes it into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. Now, I, I think if we didn't know our own hearts and know that we've done as stupid things as that, certainly, in our lives, how in the world could a person do this? You know, take a log and cook your food over one half. I mean, what if you made the God out of the wrong half of the log? You know? You raise this thing up and, and you carve it into an image and you fall down and say, You're my God. It's totally illogical. One of the things I, I find longer I live is that homo sapien, which means thinking man, is an oxymoron at the very best, you know. More moron than anything else, I suppose. That most are not thinking. Oh yeah, we may be educated and trained to do certain things and, and you know, we, we learn all these facts and figures, but it, but it doesn't change life. It doesn't make people wise. Only the Lord can make us wise. Only His Word can make us wise. We could learn. It, you know, how many scholars do you know who are Bible, quote, quote, Bible scholars or, quote, Christian scholars who, who know all about uh, the facts and figures of the Bible, but they have, nothing, they have no knowledge of the heart of the Scripture. They have no knowledge of the God of the Scripture. It's such a sad thing. To me, those are the same people that, that Jesus spoke to uh, who were the leaders of the Jewish nation, who the Pharisees in particular laid all these burdens on people, but didn't even know the God that they were talking about. Samson's folly had led to his downfall, but the Lord allowed it to happen because he was going to turn it to his glory. God will take all things and bring them to the place of glorifying his name. God would prove to Samson, he would prove to the Philistine, Philistines, and he would prove to all Israel that he alone is God. How many times does he have to do that? Many times. I mean, he had already proven it to Israel so dramatically in Egypt. And yet he has done it over and over and over again. And if that doesn't illustrate the patience of God, I don't know what does. In so doing, God is going to remove Samson's shame. And he's going to place that shame right on the Philistines and upon their god, Dagon. The Philistines attempt to discredit Yahweh and to honor their god, Dagon, and that's going to turn into a horrendous disaster for them. But I think one of the greatest messages that comes out of this passage is that God, who had been, in effect, spurned by Samson over all these years, oh God, I like this woman, I'm, I, you know, I don't care what you've called me to do, I, I really want this woman over here, and who would lie in the lap of this woman and, and more and more tell her closer and closer to the truth about wherein his strength rested and then allow himself to actually lose that strength for the, quote, love of a woman who didn't love him at all. Yet this God turns around and listens to Samson's pathetic but repentant prayer and has mercy on him. And reading that, 
I found this passage in the 86th Psalm. Psalm 86, beginning at verse 14. And I thought this, these verses really fit this, this story very well. Oh God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set thee before them. But thou, O God, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant thy strength to thy servant and save the son of thy handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because thou, O Lord, hast helped me and comforted me. Well, those, those are words that were prayed by David, but those words could have been prayed by Samson. Could have been prayed by Samson. Arrogant men have risen up against me. A band of violent men. And who were the Philistines but arrogant and violent? But you, O Lord God, are a God of merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth, constantly repeated in the Old Testament as tandem words. Loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness and truth. The two go together. Well, God heard his prayer and God answered his prayer. And it was, I mean, this certainly, I, I think he probably prayed the prayer out loud in Hebrew. And the little boy that was with him probably didn't understand uh, the prayer at all. But that didn't matter. The prayer went up and the answer came down. The Spirit of God rushed on Samson one more time as he had done when he slew the thousand Philistines, as he did when he slew the lion, as he did when the gates of Gaza were carried off to a distant hill. And so God rushed upon him again and gave this man superhuman strength to topple the pillars that supported the very building in which these lords of the Philistines were reveling in honoring their false god Dagon the very temple of Dagon, the heart of the worship of Dagon in Gaza. In spite of the incredible weight that was pressing down on these pillars, added by the weight of all the people up there. Now, I don't know if these pillars were made the typical way that the Greeks would later make their pillars, and that is you put a bunch of like donuts on top of each other to, to create your pillar. But either way, whether it was that way or if it was a solid pillar, Nothing was to stop God from destroying that building. Now, of course, the Philistines were expecting this man to amuse them. How was he going to amuse them? Well, the scripture doesn't say. Just his presence there, blind, you know, not being able to find his way. That was amusing enough. Here's the mighty Samson. He can't even find his way around. He can't see. But you can imagine how transfixed they were when they saw him there. He was leaning on the pillars, all right. He was telling the truth to the boy. I want to lean on these pillars. Well, he was leaning on these pillars. Well, we have to believe in the superhuman uh, divine uh, power here because I would suspect, and I'm, I'm sure uh, Dr. Van Ness could make this clear, if, if somebody was strong enough to actually push, push pillars over, I, I would just think it would just crush his, drive his bones into it. I mean, how can human flesh stand that kind of, if, even if he had the strength? I, I heard the story, not, I'm not positive it's true, but I heard that, well, it was in the newspaper. Well, does that make it true? <clears throat> I don't know, but 
that that there was this muscle man arm wrestler, one of these guys who was weightlifter, you know, you know, kind of guy, and and he went arm wrestling against a, a farmer type guy, a guy who hadn't been doing any arm, hadn't been doing any weightlifting, but he was just a big farmer who did a lot of heavy work. And that in the in arm wrestling, that the guy who had built his muscles up doing weights, his muscles were so strong that in the arm wrestling, he actually snapped his wrist. I mean, just snapped the bone in here. The the force was so great between the two of them. I would I would think that it would take God to hold these arms together. I, I just think we have to we just have to see that it's the spirit of God who's doing all of this here. It's not Samson himself, and. Here they are, wanting to be amused, you know, minds somewhat fuzzy from the liquor that they've been drinking as part of their worship to their God. And they, they heard him give this great cry and this mighty push. And oh no, they looked and the pillars are falling over. I don't think this was Hollywood's rendition of it, by the way. Hollywood rends, uh, turns a, a, the collapse of a building into a 20-minute scenario. You know, slow motion. You know, and people running like crazy to get out from under it, you know, and I don't think so. With the supporting pillars displaced, the overloaded roof became <laughs> disastrous. It caved in. And of course, the people who were on it were just pitched headlong into the chaos below and the debris as it fell, and the roof crushed the people underneath. I mean, we're talking about instant death almost. Who would have time to flee? Where would you flee in the crowd anyway? You're just probably pressed in there like sardines. And the magnitude of this disaster is, I think, hard for us to even imagine. Virtually the whole upper Philistine nobility was eliminated in one fell swoop. The whole leadership of the Pentapolis. Probably the Lord and, 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 and all the high nobles uh, of Ashdod and Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Gath, plus whatever others there were, wiped out in this great crush. There were 3,000 on the roof. Now, if there were 3,000 on the roof, how many were actually inside the temple itself? It certainly would have standing room for far more than 3,000 that were on the roof. Because the roof must have had a big opening in it for them to be looking in. So... Who knows how many people were inside that building? 5,000? 10,000? Whatever it was, it was a measurable portion of the Philistine population. And I think we could put a very conservative estimate to say that the number of Philistines killed inside that temple would be equivalent in our population, if the same percentage were killed, of several million dying in a single disaster. There are 275 million of us living in this country. And in Philistia at that time, how many people were living? Probably a million at the max. Probably less than that. What is really amazing to, to most of us, I think, if, when you go to, to Israel, as the Baldrigists just recently did, is that you discover how small the sites of these cities are. And, and you realize that these cities, many of these cities are smaller than some of your properties in which you live with your own single house. <laughs> I mean, when you find a whole city is less than 20 acres. And so I don't think the Philistine population was so huge. Like I say, probably a million max, probably less. So, you know, if you, if you lose, say, 10,000 out of a million, what is that? Is that 1%? Well, 1% of our population would be 2.75 million. Tragic as it was, Samson did fulfill God's purpose in that 
He killed more Philistines at the moment of his death than he had throughout his life. Because the Philistines, however, did not turn away from their obviously powerless God. I mean, how powerful is Dagon? I mean, this is his home temple, and it falls in on him and all of his worshipers because of one little blind guy over there. Doesn't, uh, doesn't testify to the strength of Dagon too much here. A and yet the Philistines do not turn from Dagon to Yahweh as a result of this. And as a result further, this means that during the judgeship of Samuel, during the reign of Saul and of David, there will continue to be war between Israel and Philistia. But momentarily, the Philistines are awed by the God of Israel so that they kind of stand around and, and don't do anything when Samson's family comes up and digs through the rubble and finds his body and carts it on out and takes it back and buries it at home. They don't stop him. They don't do anything to interfere. You'd think they would want to, to trash his body to well, do something terrible, but they're, they're just stunned. And so he his... I didn't get this thing turned on, did I? So that... They come, where's my little button here? They come all the way down. Let's see, where am I at here? They'll come all the way down from up in here, down to Gaza here, to pick his body up. This is where the temple was. And then to take it all the way back up into the Sorak Valley and to bury him here in the tomb of his father, Manoah. These are the, again, these are the cities, Gaza, Gath, the exact location of Gath is uh, somewhat questioned, as you see. There's another Gath up here. But, I, you know, when we were there, we saw the tell, which is pretty certainly is Gath, and that's the tell over here. Ashkelon and Ashdod and Ekron, those were the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis. And so this was the southernmost city of the five cities. As we think about this, Samson failed God miserably. And yet, he lived up to God's call upon his life in the sense that he was God's shofat and he was God's instrument to bring judgment upon Israel's enemies. And that's why, I'll, I'll just turn quickly to the uh, passage in Hebrews that we all know so well. That's why he is included here in Hebrews 11, where we read at verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. He gives us all some hope that even though we know we fail the Lord far more often than we wished we ever would, that he still works in us and through us to accomplish his plan. Samson is the last of the 12 Shofatim that are described in the book of Judges. He, it's believed that he lived in the 12th century before Christ and that he will, not too many years later, be followed by the last of the judges, not a judge of this book, but the last of the Shofats, Shofatim, in the person of Samuel, who will come along and, of course, be the one that God will use to anoint Saul and then later David. We're coming now to the last five chapters of the book of Judges, which comprise kind of an appendix to the book almost. It describes, the, the last five chapters are not in chronological order. They describe events that do not happen after the time of 
Samson, but actually go back and occur during the times of earlier judges. It gives detail of the spiritual apostasy and social decay that occurred as the scripture kept saying, when the men did what was right in their own eyes. This epilogue particularly, and, and as we look at these chapters, we're going to see the epilogue particularly focuses on the degradation of two tribes, the tribe of Dan, which results in it being displaced from the tribe of Dan located right in here. It's displaced clear up to here. And the tribe of Dan moves way up to the very northern end of Israel. And then also the degradation of the tribe of Benjamin. We'll be looking at that as we look at these passages also.